Good evening and welcome to Starfest, the St. Albert Readers Festival. I'm Peter Midgley, the festival director, and I will be your host for this evening. On behalf of Starfest, thank you all for joining us. Before we introduce our guests for the evening, I would like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting from territory, Treaty 6 territory, traditional lands of the First Nations and Métis people. You can purchase tonight's books from both Edmonton's independent bookstores, Audrey's Books and Glass Bookshops. We will provide links in the comments and we encourage you to please go and buy the books. After the introductions, our guests will speak for roughly 40 minutes. That will be followed by a short Q&A session. We invite you to please post your questions in the comments feature and I will relay them to our guests at the end of the evening. Right. Tonight's guest, Therese Marie Mayette, will be interviewed by Marilyn Dumont, a local Edmonton writer of Métis and Cree ancestry. Marilyn's latest book, The Pemmican Eaters, won the 2016 WGA Stefan G. Stephenson Award for Poetry. Our star guest for the evening, Therese Marie Mayette, graduated from the Institute of American Indian Arts with an MFA in fiction and was shortlisted and won a Whiting Award for nonfiction in 2019. Hardberry's A Memoir was a New York Times bestseller and was also shortlisted for the Governor General's Literary Awards for nonfiction. That amongst many other awards. Marilyn and Therese, welcome to our studio. Thank you. Hello, good evening. Hi, everybody. <laughs> All right. And then just before I hand you over, just remember again, please do comment on uh, YouTube and remember that you have to be logged in in order to post your comments. So sit back, enjoy the evening. So, Therese, um, when Peter mentioned that you were coming to Starfest, I was really excited because uh, when the book uh, came out, it was published in Canada a couple of years ago. I had it in a, I had it in one of my classes, and and it was work that my students deeply identified with. I mean, to the point where there were some people in the class who'd never spoken before. They really identified with this work. So I'm so pleased to be talking to you about this wonderful. Uh, well, your writing period, but Heartberries particularly. Um, one of the things that I'm really struck with in this in this book is that, you know, it's called a memoir, it's called poetry, it's called meditation. And then you yourself are called a mirror, a mirror of ourselves. However, when I first read it, I read it as fiction. So, I just wanted to ask you about, about that. How do you identify the book? And how, yeah, how do you identify the book? Why did you read it as fiction? <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, for some reason, I just did. I don't know why. Yeah. Oh, that's cool, though. Because, like, yeah. you know, I use, um, forgive me, I have the sniffles a little bit. I don't know. It's like allergies. But um, so I use elements of fiction like that I was taught in grad school, um, like things like if I knew that there were long roving paragraphs, I inserted um, a scene, you know, from lived experience. But I knew that a text had to be dynamic to really um be digested and to be experienced as a real experience. So I do use elements of fiction um, that I learned in school to write. And um, I mean, for me, it's definitely a memoir and essays. I knew just hearing like memoir and essays for me felt like I had more liberation as a writer because for me, I couldn't really pin down what a memoir was supposed to do, but if I compartmentalized it inch by inch through essay form, it was going to turn out 
well and experimental, you know? So, yeah, I don't know. I'm thinking about that still, like, you know, kind of like the elements I used um, in terms of dialogue, scene, um, not ex expo exposition, like not relying too heavily on exposition. Um, those are all kind of fundamentals of fiction, right? Um, but when they apply to nonfiction, I think they become more vivid for a reader. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I was also interested in the way the book is organized, um, particularly the table of contents, where you have two chapters that are uh, called Indian Condition. And then only one of the table of contents has a page number. So I just wanted to talk to you about that and how that how that came about and whether you liked it or not. Yeah, I mean, for me, I guess the idea of a condition that is fixed and being Indian is laughable, kind of like, you know, like this idea of Indian plight, you know, but then I I really think about it and I have absorbed a lot of things that feel essentially Indian and bound to me, um, like intergenerational trauma, you know, so like, and also some things that are also socioeconomically Indian, like, you know, being, dealing with intergenerational trauma and being on a social assistance on a reserve, that feels mm -hmm. super Indian to me. So it's like, the opening is my circumstance, which I felt burdened by. And the end is what I have inherited and my legacy that I'll leave behind. You know, mm -hmm. that's why they're two, two of the same name, but different scopes. Okay. You know? Wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. Um, you were talking about <clears throat> exposition a minute ago. And I wanted to ask you about the short sentences that you use and how how punctuated they are, how dramatic they are. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, why did you use that? Yeah, so like, just for an example, like my book opens where I write, my story was maltreated, the words were too wrong and ugly to speak, period. Um, I knew with brevity and paring down that a reader especially somebody where I'm from or like people I know who have had similar hard experiences, I knew that they would read that and know exactly what I meant. You know, that like we all have stories and we've tried to unburden ourselves and tell them even on first dates, you know, when somebody asks you, so what's your story? Who are you? And when you're indigenous and you have all of these different things and you've been compartmentalized and essentialized in so many ways like a first date even if you're a single mom a first date becomes how much do i give this person in my story and how much can i trust them to not maltreat that story so you know when i wrote that line i knew it was it was reaching out to people who have been boxed in by their stories and haven't been able to share them but also, um, it was a rhetorical appeal to people who have lived good lives and didn't know that stories could be maltreated. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, the other thing I thought about is, because I think the word that is easy, easy to reach for is mistreat. And so when I read maltreatment, I particularly liked the fact that you didn't go immediately to mistreated. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, mistreat sounds familiar, but it also doesn't sound severe enough. Like, maltreatment is neglect, you know? Maltreatment is abuse, you know? Yeah. Okay. And it's like, you really can abuse a story, especially a social worker again. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, I, I love the way you articulate that. Um, you know, there's, there's lines that just jump out at me in this text. And I know that they jumped out at the students uh, when I taught them, particularly Indigenous, young Indigenous women. 
And lines like, Indian girls can be forgotten so well they forget themselves. Like that one hit, it just hit like somebody punched you in the stomach, that line. I mean, for me particularly, but I also, you know, for young Indigenous women reading that. You want to talk about that? Well, it's strange because if we were, you know, like my grandmother never made me feel like I was forgetting myself, but there were aspects of our culture, not our natural, you know, culture, but our colonized culture that make Native women feel like they can't be too much. They have to be dutiful. They have to endure. They have to be resilient. And then in all of these things, you know, honoring teachings and all of these things, like, you know, sometimes we can experience abuse, for example, and or mistreatment or like maltreatment. And then we don't even realize it. You know what I mean? Like we don't even realize it. So for me, I felt like I had been burdened by all of these things I was supposed to be and forgetting even that I existed, that I was autonomous, you know, or that I should have autonomy, you know, because like back home, it was like one way to get out of your home is to be married and to have kids young is an expectation too. So like, and that's not even to say anything negative. That's just the way it is. And I'm glad I had my kids young. I love, I'll have more kids, you know what I mean? But, but like I got lost in my, in, all of these expectations put upon me and nobody ever in my community like ever talked about autonomy that's a word i learned in college you know what i mean right and um it is really easy to go missing where i'm from you know that's mm -hmm. another allusion to in that in that line because it's like we get forgotten you know mm -hmm. and then when we go missing or, for example, I've lost a lot of Native women in my life, and people mourn well, they know how to grieve, but, you know, I can't say that they treated those women very well when they were in the, on this earth, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. also alluding to that, too. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that maybe just to follow that up and to reinforce what you're saying, another line that was, Indian women are usually discouraged from basic agency. Just, yeah, I mean, just, you just expressed that. that mm -hmm. um, some other parts of your writing, they have this kind of paradoxical uh, framing or paradoxical putting two things side by side. For example, um, uh, you say things like, it is odd that I went to foster care while my mother worked in a group home. And there are other lines like that in, in the writing, too, that I just found so compelling and uh, so real, uh, real about um, lives that are uh, people that are struggling in their lives. Yeah, I mean, the group home thing, like my mom worked three days on, three days off, but like so that we could eat. You know what I'm saying? And that was her. She was a very hardworking woman, as a lot of you know, young mothers and mothers are, they're very hardworking. And then the, um, the classism at play where she had to work three days on while she had teenagers at home, you know, there was just, there's a lot of struggle that I wanted to convey that, that she had lived through, that it wasn't all her fault, you know, it was a lot a system. It was a lot of system, you know, it was a lot systemic racism and how it's hard to get ahead as a woman, especially, you know, especially a trauma survivor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's another quote uh, from the book where, you, where you're talking about um, your mother and you say, what Indians weren't taught to know, uh, or sorry, she transcended resilience and actualized what Indians weren't taught to know, we are unmovable. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, that line's about my grandma. So, um, you know, she was not, uh, she went to residential school, she went to St. George's. And um, 
but nothing could change or shape her into an ugly, you know, person, a person who was angry or bitter or would hurt her own people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like through her, you know, I survived, you know, through her and through my mother. So like there is an unmovable uh, spirit that like, even if they took her practices away, she still practiced them every day in her grace and kindness. Like those teachings that were hidden, they are living and breathing inside of us. You know, I really believe that. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what are you working on now? What new pieces of writing? Well, I signed uh a book deal with Doubleday Canada to write a novel. Mm -hmm. So I'm inching towards finishing it. I'm supposed to finish it by January, but I mean, it would take like some divinity, you know, to <laughs> meet the deadline. But, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm working hard on it. It's just that it's one of those things that it's about a young girl growing up where I'm from. So I'm trying to you know, do honoring work while also cultivating fiction and letting myself play. But it's very hard to juggle those two things as, as like a native writer, because, you know, doing honoring work while also having art and communicating in free ways, like, they don't really go together that well, like, it takes a lot of debate. And um, being very conscious of what you're doing. So I'm, I, every day, I'm kind of like, if I have a scene between two young native girls, I'm thinking like about representation, which you really shouldn't think about the things that you're cultivating work. It should more be an afterthought or else you get held up and pinned down. But I don't know. You can't help but think about those things, about how this will be read, about if your mother read it, you know, which you feel like it's true to life you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on a novel, but it's slow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is this the first piece of fiction you worked on? No, my thesis was fiction. It was a short story collection, um, right. which I just kind of turned all of those real moments from the fiction into and converted them into memoir. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Oh, great. Um, you know, you talk about honoring story or honoring work, excuse me, which is probably a term that a lot of people haven't heard. Um, but I think writers of color, um, Indigenous writers are very conscious of this honoring work. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I feel like, you know, when we have success, it is collective so when we fail it's also collective whether we want to be held up as singular artists or not you know we can't help the way our work is politicized but also um like um capitalized on and also talked about so like i don't think we should be burdened to that necessarily but i think you know when we're writing for example about um a reserve right if we're writing about a reserve and what res life is like we have to know just inherently the way that might be talked about or looked at um by reviewers by readers by our own people so it's like honoring work is really capturing the essence which i think all writers are doing anyway like if a writer is writing about growing up in the midwest they don't want to um, shame their grandmothers, you know what I mean? And, and be like, you know, I think writing it and misrepresenting it. But I think for us, it's kind of deeper. Like, you know, for me, I think uh, we carry a lot of, um, especially knowing that our work is fundamental. So like, when I wrote my memoir, I know I was one of the few um, people from where I'm from to publish work. Yeah. So that's honoring work too, is like knowing if we're underrepresented, you really have mm -hmm. to strive for excellence and also create more opportunities. You know, the honoring work is 
doesn't just take place on the on the page. It's about you know um, living as well as you can and and honoring your people in different ways too. Yeah, thank you. That's a really wonderful way to put it. Um, what was I going to ask you? There's something else I wanted to ask. Um, oh, you're talking about honoring work and uh, stories that are maltreated. And um, Daniel Heath Justice talks about stories that are toxic. There are good stories and there are toxic stories. Um, how did your community re react to the publication of, of Heartberry? I don't know. It's one of those things that, like, I mean, just talking to other people who write, like, it's really unusual for your own family to even read your book, if that makes sense. Like, mm -hmm. so, like, you know, my brothers read it. Um, my cousins, like, my auntie cousins, they haven't read it because they're like, no, it's too hard, Trees. Like, it's too hard. Um, because they were really living that, you know, like their, their homes were the ones that I went to, um, for safety and thing like things like that. So like they didn't read it, but my sister read it and, you know, I don't know, like, it's like my, my nation is so diverse that like, I mean, I wanted to piss some people off, right? Like, I wanted to make some of them mad, but, um, and they wanted to do an honoring ceremony for me um, when I first came out with a book, you know, but I, I told them that I couldn't do it because someone I knew, you know, whose son had abused a young girl I knew was going to be at the event. And I said, you know, until you, kick out that's not even a band member who lived there and I was like until you get rid of these predators you know I'm not I'm not gonna feel good being honored at a place I don't even feel safe at you know what I mean mm -hmm. um that said I do feel safe in my auntie's home I feel safe you know I feel safe at my sister's house you know I love my family um and I love my friends back home but it's a complicated relationship with my homeland you know yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, would you like to read from from the book a little bit? I'll read. Um, I have the paperback. I'm going to read from, let's do uh, part of I Know I'll Go. And this is um, about my father. His name was Ken Myatt or Ken Paquette. Um, and it starts, um, it's chapter six in my book, but I don't know what it is in yours. Oh, uh, let's see. All right. <clears throat> my father died at the Thunderbird Hotel on Flood Hope Road. According to documents, he was beaten over a sex worker or a cigarette. I prefer to tell people it was over a cigarette. I considered an Indian death myself while walking along the country roads of my reserve before I really considered life. His death intruded as I could not fathom being a good person when I came from such misery. I found newspaper clips about my dad. Ken and four men abducted a girl. There aren't any details. There are documents about his murder and the transitional housing program he was in when he died. He was homeless. <laughs> he was homeless. And social welfare gave him a hotel room next to sex, sex workers and younger, more violent men. There was nothing easy about his memory or what he left behind. He was an anomaly, a drunk savant. He took his colors, brushes, and stool when he left my mother. It was harvest and the corn stalks were gold and waving. I was waiting on the porch. I ate blueberries and spit out anything too ripe, a purple liquid. 
His hair was black and coarse. He was wearing a baseball t-shirt and jeans covered in rusted acrylic. As an Indian woman, I resist the urge to bleed out on a page to impart this story of my drunken father. It was dangerous to be alone with him as it was dangerous to forgive, as it was dangerous to say he was a monster. If he were a monster, that would make me part monster, part Indian. It is my politic to write the humanity in my characters and subvert the stereotypes. Isn't that my duty as an Indian writer? But what part of him was subversion? Thanks. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, one of the um, the other quotes that I have from the book that I thought was really interesting, and, and the term was Indian sick, and I think you referred to it before. The spirits used to possess the people, we called it Indian sick, and it was the first illness to be accounted for. It it begins with want, with taking, and ends with a silence that hurts and makes us big. Sorry, I missed the question. What was the <laughs> I, I just wanted to know, I'd like you to talk about that because it's it's such a um it's such a compelling um kind of description. The spirits used to possess the people. We called it Indian sick, and it was the first illness to be accounted for. It begins with want, with taking, and ends with a silence that hurts and makes us big. There was, uh, you know, I had to be so ambiguous um, because when I talk about like illness, like spiritual illness, or like ceremony or anything i i'm really pulling back as an author and trying to like give maybe even if it's you know if it's somebody from a different nation or something i want them to get the gist of what i'm saying but i don't want to give away so much that i upset um the you know like my elders you know right. or my teachers so like you know for me it's like it's hard to answer that because it's like you know, I think every nation probably has some version of that where you get spiritually ill and you have to reconcile with that through ceremony. And like, you know, for me, when I entered the hospital and I was, you know, mentally, mentally unwell, um, I was spiritually unwell too, you know? And like, so I wanted to convey in that chapter that like, I was, I wrote that from a hospital. So I was writing it in a composition book at the hospital and I wanted to convey that like I knew this illness went far beyond the white rooms of uh, medicine you know what I mean yeah right yeah Absolutely. something that you um a, tr a phrase that you use was bleed out on the page I don't want to bleed out on the page can you talk about why yeah, like, you know, when you're writing nonfiction and you've experienced trauma, like, um, I know how that wants to be, you know, how people might want you to write it. They might want you to give everything, you know, and they might want to have all the details of the account, you know, as if it was testimony. And it's like, well, this is art. You know, and if it's going to be art, it's going to be on my terms with, like, my boundaries, not only as an artist, but as a woman, right? Like, as an autonomous woman. So, you know, I feel like a lot of women, when they tell their stories, especially about being hurt, they feel like they have to give everything to for it to ring true and for people to believe them. And they have to make rhetorical appeals. But you know, and they basically have to bleed out and make emotional appeals. But I was like, F that, you know, I'm going to tell the truth as bare as I need it to be, but I'm also going to uh, resist in many ways, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there was something else I was going to ask you about that. Um, the aspect of 
So where did you learn that? Where did you learn these boundaries about in writing? I don't know, like by by like real I don't know, because it took a whole life to realize that I could say no, you know, to people, to men. It mm -hmm. took a whole life to realize I could punch back. <laughs> so like I guess that's, you know, late late twenties I learned how to fight back and also to not take any stuff. And I think that always transfers to everything you do. So once you develop boundaries as a person, you, at work, you're different. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So did you, did you ever think of being a writer as a child? Yeah, I did. I liked reading. I've always loved reading. Um, you know, I think I do less of it now during the pandemic. I'm less focused, you know, but um, I wrote poetry when I was a teenager and I read a lot and I was always good with just kind of like, you know, I was always better on the page. And I think that's really important for a lot of writers, you know. Um, but I think really I wanted to be a receptionist or a lawyer or like a high school teacher. I never really considered a career as a as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Peter, I'm just going to check and see if there's any questions. Okay. 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 So, so you're working on fiction now, and it was a memoir at first, and you said you wrote short uh, collection of short stories that were basically based on on life, on your own mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I'm just wondering, what is it that you want to try next? I mean, I wish I could, I wish I didn't need to work at all. <laughs> so I wish I could try, you know, um, you know, for me, teaching at an MFA has its benefits, being a mentor mm -hmm. and you know, working individually with young writers and older writers, those, that's great. But like, ideally, I would like a life without hustle, you know, I like a life, you know, what I want to try next is like, balance, you know, because since the book came out in 2018, I was doing a nonstop kind of like mm -hmm. book tour yeah. while I was, you know, also teaching at Purdue and also mentoring in MFA programs, low residencies. So like what's next is I'd like to have more leisure in my life and more peace, you know? Yeah. Cause career wise, you know, I don't have any more plans, you know, yeah. not really. I'm not yeah. really sparked by anything except doing right but what really sparks me now is trying to have like a life beyond struggle you know yes absolutely. Mm -hmm. um is there, is there anything i didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about i mean no usually the funny thing is like you know, when I go to conferences and I'm on panels, I'm always the one who likes not talking. <laughs> I, I, that's my trick is like, you know, I get I get to be able to go to the conference, but I also get to just sit there and listen to other people. <laughs> so like, um, and I usually concur with all their thoughts and ideas too. So I don't even need to like answer. Um, yeah, I found different ways not to do stuff, but you know, I don't know. I think it's like, it's really important. You know, I know we talked a lot about craft, you know, um, and we talked a lot about personal experiences and being a uh, Native woman and, you know, being Indigenous and those struggles too. But I think it's really important to convey um, that I really believe that people can do this, you know, um, no matter your walk in life, I believe you can achieve huge things that are beyond even like anyone else's imagined ideas about you, you know, because, you know, nobody would have thought that I'd be 
a New York Times bestseller, and we would have thought that, and I wouldn't have thought that. Um, but there was just something that turned in me that made me want things, and made me feel unashamed about speaking the want. And I think a lot of people don't do that. They don't say, I want to be on TV, you know, because no. um, we're supposed to have humility. But I think, I think you can have humility and also desire things too, mm -hmm. you know? Wonderful. Oh, wonderful. Are there questions, Peter? Yes, in fact, I <laughs> was just about to remind people that I am here. And please, before I ask the questions, for those of you watching out there, please do post some questions. We have some here. Um, I have a question here from Corey, who says, Therese, you are naturally a very spiritual person. And if so, can you tell us more about your spirituality? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of innate. So, you know, as you're growing up, like, for example, you know, my mom had a sweat lodge in the back of the house, and we had a huge garden that my grandmother had cultivated. And like, we were always outside, you know, we were always with healers and elders and, you know, all kinds of different types of um, spiritual people, even people we would not ever appropriate like tarot card readers like my mom was very anti that practice but she liked the kind of the very deeply spiritual people who kind of were drawn to her so for me it was like i grew up around um one specific medicine man you know his name was fred cardinal and he would come and see us and stay with us and he would always make me put on Die Hard after he was done for the day. That's my favorite memory of him. None of the teachings, really. Just that he, you know, would come from working on a sweat lodge or, you know, praying or, you know, he always spoke Cree too. So it's really nice to be around, you know, the language, you know, who, you know, my dad's side. Um, but I just remember like, being around those people and learning all their different dynamics and feeling like you can believe. And I think when my mom passed away, I resisted that and I said I was an atheist um, because that's what everyone in college says. <laughs> but like, but I always came back to, with every death, new death in my life, I feel more spiritual. I feel more like I believe, which, you know, I didn't think I would feel that way, but I do. I, it's just kind of in me, you know? Okay, and I'll just keep them coming. They're coming in fast and furious now. <laughs> See, sometimes <laughs> you just have to coax people from this end. So, uh, Peter Bailey asks, says, Therese, you seem happy. Your youth would make anyone angry, but how do you manage that? My what? You oh, seem happy. Up, yeah. how, did it, how do you, despite your youth, how do you manage that? I am a furious person so much makes me angry so like you know like that's the thing is I think it's because I'm you know I let whatever needs to be in the room in the room so like I don't resist my anger anymore or expressing myself you know and I find healthy ways to do it now you know and I think I'm trying to repress that and trying to be a nice girl and trying to be somebody men want and trying all these different hats on as a woman. Um, it only bred bad things in my life. So like, you know, in my 30s now, I embrace myself and I also honor the trauma. So if I'm having a really bad day, I actually do like make an appointment with my therapist, you know, and I do talk to my brother and I do smudge like that's the thing is like healing as a practice has changed me for the better but not completely because i am a furious woman i do have fury so <laughs> yeah i mean there's very few unlucky people have seen it so they're fine <laughs> well fury is good it's a good in there are so many things one should and could be furious about I have a question here from Donna Wyatt and asking what were your favorite books when you were growing up? Yeah, so Emily Dickinson's um, like collection, like her whole collection of poems um, 
I'm nobody, who are you? You know, I recited that one of my first days of class and pretty much um, any any book I could read. So I was like, a, I mean, I liked um, Steinbeck when I was a teenager, you know, and I liked um, Edgar Allan Poe. But I, and I also liked Lee Miracle because she was my auntie. So like, I Am Woman was kind of like, you know, all of her books, the, um, the I think it's Bobby Lee, that book was in our house when it first came out. And like, I remember reading it, but more to see if we were in it. <laughs> yeah. All right, and then before I ask the next question, I'm just going to read a comment here from Kate Hersberger. It says, Therese, your writing style was a delicate surprise. I had to start Heartberries as I adjusted to your poetry and ab in an abstract way. It's so beautiful. Thank you for your talent, vulnerability, and artistry. So Thank you. There's Thank that. Um, and I read that because Kim Thorson says, I love the respect in your words about honoring your community while challenging it at, at the same time. Do you feel that respect is rare? Yeah, I think for a lot of a lot of people it's hard to it's hard to honor yourself because there's so much degradation you know in the world i think you know i can only speak from you know perspective of of you know my own right but like for me honoring my and challenging my community um, it came from so much degradation. So seeing my brother and I in our pain represented through art was honoring work because we had only been subjugated and stereotyped, you know. So like, even though it's hard to read and actually deeply sad at points, I feel like we celebrate it every day that I publish the book because we're like, somebody actually noticed us and, and turned it into art instead of turning it into a statistic or, you know, something to report to get more funding. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, Peter Bailey says, you're teaching at Purdue in Indiana. Uh, are you now living in the U.S.? And what's it like to be there in 2020? Yeah, so I don't leave my house. And I have a vitamin D deficiency, so. <laughs> but I have it. Um, I have vitamin D in my house. But um, it's a, you know, I have been teaching at Purdue, and I, for me, I'd love to go back home. But like Seaburn Island Band, there are no jobs for an English professor, like somebody with an English MFA. You know what I mean? So. And I even offered to teach high school, and they're like, "No, you need a you need an education degree." And I'm like, "No, thank you." <laughs> Sorry. So for me, I go, you know, where the money is because the more money I make, the more I collectively help everybody in my life. And I wish it wasn't that way. I wish you didn't have to feel capitalistic. But being in the states is weird because, you know, there's. There's a lack of um, community here. I don't have my cousins with me. I don't have my aunties. And um, on top of that, what Trump is doing is very triggering. So for a lot of people, you know, not just indigenous people, but even, you know, white women are like experiencing trauma through Trump. And it's like, I just feel like, I mean, it's nothing I really, not used to though because when we were in Canada my mother had so many hard hardships you know through the Indian Act and things like that so I've always been familiar with government being a negative source but Trump is just a new type of bad he has a Twitter account and he tweets like uh, when he feels like it and um, that's new to me seeing somebody you know who literally just got there because of his subject position and not because of his merit. I mean, I think it proves a lot about government and how they function. Yeah. 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 Traumatizing. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to take you a bit away from that topic. And uh, <laughs> Leslie, Leslie Greentree asks if you can talk about the book's framework and addressing the book to your former partner. 
Yeah, so then Casey, oh man, because he was not characterized very well in the book because as a political act, I felt like he was definitely a transgressor, you know, throughout most of my dating life with him. And he had been one of the, I think, most prominent like partners in my life who had really called me crazy, you know. Like, he called me crazy, and he was um, not into seeing me as a complicated person. So, like, I wrote in an epistolary form and structure, which is a letter, to him, and I started writing to try to convince him that I was, you know, a deeply emotional, complicated, but good person. And I ended up writing a book that's nothing about explaining things to him and more like resistant and aggressive and um, exploratory towards myself which I mean that's debatable if it's good as a practice but in terms of the art structure it ended up being how did I get to this position where I'm in a romantic relationship trying to prove to somebody that I'm not crazy and um, and then when you have that as narrative question and you answer the narrative question um, you think about possibilities for transcendence and for me that's where the book was going to end is with the possibility of wielding power through narrative but Casey had to read it twice and he read it out loud with me while I was in residency and by the time we read it out loud we were so far removed from those people we were when when I was in an institution when we were up and down before we had a baby. But he read it and he felt deeply impacted with all the things he didn't know about me. Like he didn't know everything, especially the ladybugs, how my house was infested with ladybugs. Like little things like this, he was like, I had no idea. I didn't know, you know. So I think we love each other deeper, but it's also like, oh no, now you're a character in the literary world, like, whoops, you know? So, I would not write about him again. I would not. I don't think I will. <laughs> but it was good. It was transformative for me. Yeah. And he okayed it. So, I just think I would have done it different, you know, if I knew. Because I didn't even know if we were going to stay together. I just knew I wanted to render this part of my life um as art you know and you have to you have to just write something and think if this changes my relationship forever it's meant to change forever so be it you know thank you that yes <laughs> i want to before i ask a final question that will we go in i wanted to just to, one of my own questions is so many of the comments if you look online have been about how disjointed the book is, how difficult it is to read and I must say I did not find it that and yes there are leaps but to me this is a, a very conscious narrative structure and so typical of trauma narratives and so mm -hmm. why, uh, do you want to talk about that? L let me say how do you read Indian uh, indigenous writing, uh, how do you read those broken bits? Just some advice for those those people who criticize that aspect of it. Well, I think it's like, I think they know, like when they're reading, and for example, there's a whole chapter where I do, I utilize space breaks to show in juxtaposition my new marriage of kind of like quote unquote normalcy next to my old marriage to Vito. So I use space breaks, but the paragraphs are right next to each other in the eye, right? They have some space, but I just, I rely on the narrator, like the reader to know that we're jumping in time with every paragraph and that it will, um, there, it will work in confluence like a river by the end, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I trust the reader with that, but I knew it would be hard and it would jump around. Um, but I also knew it was fragmented because of all the trauma. So like, you know, your lived experience, the content does inform the form, right? So like, I couldn't have written it 
in a linear way um, where it was, um, you know, in the beginning there was this and then it ends up in this space because literally in a span of a day for a trauma survivor, you might experience three different points of your life, you know, mm-hmm. as if it was yesterday, you know? Yeah. yeah. I don't think it's that hard to read. But... No, but it's... I, it's beautiful, and I, I actually enjoyed that a lot. So it, it's just that that was, seems to be such a recurring comment from, from people as a criticism. And yeah, you and just have to not read the comments. <laughs> like, I don't read good reads. You know? I only care about what the New York Times and, like, The Guardian. And, like, you know, I only care about the actual critics. And then I'm like, even then... I make my husband read it, and I tell him, if it's not good, don't tell me. Don't even tell me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Then I think let's wrap it up with a question that just from Jeffrey Mandershite here. It says, what warms your heart the most? My, so my kids, obviously, but like, you know, um, being mischievous with them, like trying to beat them at Mario Kart and practicing all day so I can them once you know that warms my heart the most um you know impromptu like you know pajama parties you know especially during covid we've done so many you know nights where we're just like you know what this is a pandemic this is a crisis we're gonna eat a lot of candy you know and giving yourself permission to have a um like not an unhealthy response, but whatever you need to take care of yourself in a time of crisis, you know? So those are all the things immediately, I know, like make me feel good. Um, You know, and my son, he is five, Casey, little Casey, and he reads, you know, fluently, and he wrote a 50 page book, um, you know, last week. And it's like, you know, there's only one sentence per page, but it like, I mean, he gets us to read it almost every day, you know, and that's just, that's just so beautiful, you know, yeah, it's so cool, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for that, Therese, and I think on that note, uh, I'll say, Marilyn, thank you for joining us here this evening. Thank you, Marilyn. My pleasure. And uh, we look forward to having you at, at Starfest again, and I look forward to more conversations with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. And Therese, yes, thank you. Thank you for that. So thank you all. And as we close out the evening's events, I just want to remind you all that you can purchase the books online at Edmonton's two bookstores, uh, independent bookstores, Audrey's Books and Glass Bookshop. The links are in the comments. So please go ahead, buy the books, read it. It's a gorgeous story. Thank you also to our technical team here at Starfest. Without them, the show would not happen. And please do visit Starfest online at www.starfest.ca. Look at our other authors. It's a fabulous lineup. Register for more events. We'd love to have you back. And so from me, until next time, good night.